So I want to begin today with a deliberately provocative question. Don't answer it, just think about it. Uh, where in our city do the worst sinners live? <laughs> Thank you, Stephanie, everywhere. I said, don't answer it. Um, so the idea is which neighborhoods in our city commit the most or the worst sins? Is it the poor neighborhoods in town or is it the wealthy neighborhoods? Or is it somewhere in between, in the middle class? And uh, I'm sure if I gave you all a bit of time to think about that, I expect most of you would say what Stephanie said, the proper Christian answer, you know, since we're in church and all. You tell me, sin is everywhere, John, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And of course, that's true. But then what do we make of the reality that sin does not appear to be evenly distributed? Does it appear that some sinners are worse than others? It's worth talking about because it's not like we never think this way, is it? And we know that the police do not visit all areas of our city equally. There are some places that have to be constantly patrolled, and there are other places where the cops hardly ever go. And if you look at the history of the police map of Tallahassee, it tells a story, and it tells pretty much the same story you find anywhere, which is that poor neighborhoods generate the vast majority of the 911 calls, especially when it comes to theft, assault, and violent crime. But does that mean that worse people live there? Or, in truth, is there really just as much sinning going on in the fancy estates? In fact, far more expensive illegal drugs, more black market trades on the dark web, and schemes that can rob and exploit a million people at once. Maybe there's a case to be made that it's the rich neighborhoods, actually, that have the worst sinners, but they just have the resources to hide it from the police. Or maybe the worst sinners are in the middle-class neighborhoods, walking around with blinders on to their culpability or responsibility in the world around them, living out their quiet, comfortable lives as if the governing class and the suffering class don't exist at all. I think there are lots of ways that we can point fingers and assign blame. There's lots of specks to be found in eyes. <laughs> and I suspect that wherever your mind first went when I asked the question, where in town do the worst sinners live, before you allowed your good sense and biblical training to edit you into a better answer, I expect your mind went straight to a part of town where you don't live. So I just want to start by noticing that and put a pin in it as we open up Lamentations chapter 4. You can turn there now, it's page 689. Because what we're going to think about today is the relationship between suffering and sin. And it's not a simple relationship, it's a very complex relationship. And don't worry, I'm not going to answer the question I started with. I'm not going to point any fingers or assign blame, because Jesus said don't do that. Um, but there are lessons for us. Uh, both for the poor and the powerful when it comes to this idea of suffering and sin. And three lessons that we learn about suffering and sin in Lamentations 4 are, first, that suffering exposes sin. Suffering exposes sin. Second, that suffering also limits sin. And then third, paradoxically, that suffering heals sin. Very surprising lessons from Lamentations 4. All right, so the first one is that suffering exposes sin. 
So I wonder if you've had this experience around this point in Lent, four weeks into Lent, that you feel like your character is deteriorating instead of improving, right? Maybe you've taken on some kind of strict discipline like no TV or no social media or a strict diet or a new prayer routine and it seemed like such a good and holy thing to choose and you had all these expectations of a sweet walk with your Lord Jesus. But at this point in the process, the opposite seems to be happening. Your discipline seems to have turned you into a worse human being. You're grouchy and irritable and always ready to fly off the handle and bored and fractious and depressed. And maybe you've just traded one addiction for a new one. Um, so Sarah confessed to me last week, I really don't think that self-denial does any favors for my holiness at all. Well, if that's you, then take heart, because this is one of the effects the Bible says to expect suffering to have. And our self-denial in Lent is, of course, a very mild form of suffering. What we choose for ourselves is much milder than what the Lord chooses for us. You might have noticed uh, the same effect on a much larger scale from a more severe suffering that's been forced on you like living with daily pain or anxiety about your future or grief over a lost loved one. And perhaps in the face of that prolonged experience of suffering, you're noticing your character deteriorate. You're much less the person you want to be, less hopeful, less faithful, more angry, more bitter, and falling back into old patterns of sin and addiction. And if that's the case, then that's actually an ordinary fruit of suffering. Because we see here the first thing that suffering does is about sin is to expose it. It doesn't create it, it exposes it. It exposes the real reality underneath. And we see that graphically illustrated in Lamentations 4 in Jerusalem's mothers. So think about mothers in their culture, as in ours, the mothers were reliably the kindest, gentlest, and most compassionate members of society. Wars and revolutions are rarely started by nursing moms. And in fact, the Hebrew word for compassionate comes from the word for womb. So they thought, how can we describe this beautifully kind response of the heart that looks on weakness with care and gentleness? Ah, it's just like a mother's heart toward the child of her own womb. That's their word, compassion. It's so strong is that connection that it's even embedded in their language. But here, what happened to Jerusalem's mothers during the siege of Jerusalem? Verse 3 says, even jackals offer the breast. They nurse their young, but the daughter of my people has become cruel like ostriches in the wilderness. It talks about ostriches because they were viewed as being stupid and careless creatures when it came to their young. They would nest on the ground. They would offer their babies no protection. But the behavior of these mothers in Jerusalem went way beyond carelessness and into cruelty. Verse 3 says they have become cruel. And then verse 10 graphically illustrates what that means. And it's a verse that I don't want to repeat aloud, but you can see it there. In the face of extreme suffering, the very gentlest members of society became cruel. And notice there in verse 10 that the word compassion, the word that derives from the word for womb, is right there in the verse as a bitter irony. Can we imagine the lev level of suffering and desperation that would lead to this behavior? 
What would drive a loving mother to do such a thing? I don't think we can because none of us has ever faced anything like it. And could we ourselves guarantee that faced with the same predicament, we would have chosen differently? I think the answer is that no, we can't. Because we really don't know the extent of our sin problem until suffering exposes it. If you think you can say with confidence that you would never do such a thing as these mothers did, then you haven't really started getting to know your own sin. Because if you have, then if you've come to the point of catching even one honest glimpse of the depravity in your own heart, then you're tempted to say with all the great saints, what, what a wicked creature I am. I could really do anything. Given the wrong circumstances, there's nothing I might not do. Jesus, deliver me from this body of death. So this realization should make us compassionate with the sins of the poor. Perhaps it is true that poorer neighborhoods of our cities tend to have more violence, more theft, and more domestic abuse. But we should recognize that that doesn't necessarily mean they have more sin, because it can be explained by this biblical pattern that because of suffering, their sin is just much more exposed. There's no doubt that the poor experience much more daily suffering than people who have resources. Their work is often harder and longer, their diet inadequate, and their living conditions cramped and squalid. They lack the tools and resources that smooth the way of the wealthy, and they live in daily anxiety of losing what little they do have. Poverty produces suffering, and suffering exposes sin. And that doesn't excuse the real sin. None of us should be in the business of making excuses for sin. But it should also, at the same time, arouse compassion, the kind of compassion that our Lord Jesus had for all the sinners that he met. And I think the suffering poor deserve not only our compassion, but also our respect. Because if poor neighborhoods tend to have more than their fair share of crime, then they also tend to have more than their fair share of faith. They have seen their sin, and they take it to God for forgiveness. So the work of suffering to expose sin isn't necessarily a negative word, neg negative work. Let's not run away from it. Suffering doesn't produce sin in us. It doesn't create it out of nothing. It just reveals the truth of what's really hiding inside us. And the word expose in Hebrew is the word galah, which means to lay bare or to strip naked. It's quite a violent word. It's often used of physical nakedness, and sometimes it describes the punishment of stripping someone violently to expose their shame. So at the end of this chapter, Jeremiah says to Edom, but your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. And the last uh, little clause is, he will uncover your sins. Uncover is galah. God will strip your sins naked. But then if we glance back in Lamentations to chapter 2, that same word has a more positive connotation. And you can see that if you flip back to Lamentations 2, verse 14. It says, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes. You see that there? That's the word galah again. The prophet's job was to expose iniquity, even if that seemed like a violent act of stripping people naked. And Jeremiah says that if the prophets in Jerusalem had done their job, the fortunes of the whole nation could have been restored. They might have avoided 
the exile. So as we think about this word galah, a picture starting to emerge, that sin must be exposed at some point. The gentlest way is to expose it ourselves, that we confess our own sin to one another. And that sounds hard, but that's actually the easiest of all the options, because failing that, God will send prophets to speak up and expose our sin publicly. And that's much less nice than confessing it. It might feel like being publicly stripped. But it still gets worse from there because if the prophets don't speak or we don't listen to them, then the next solution on the list is suffering. The kind of torturous suffering that God sent upon Jerusalem. And in their case, that step succeeded where the first two steps had failed because after the exile, the remnant of the people of God were very honest about their sin and also zealous in their faithfulness to God. And it's a good job they were, because if even suffering doesn't work to expose sin, then the final solution is that God himself must expose it, as he does for Edom. And that is by far the worst option of all. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, the fate that awaits Edom at the end of Lamentations chapter 4. So if you are finding that suffering is exposing your sin to you right now, if 2020 taught you lessons about yourself that you never wanted to know, <laughs> then don't despair about yourself. Count it, in fact, as a mercy. It is still a mercy. And bring that sin to the cross of Jesus in repentance. It's one of the jobs that suffering does in us is to expose sin. Now, second, suffering also limits sin. Okay, so there's first, uh, this is the disciplinary nature of suffering. Uh, first of all, we've seen that it's illuminating, but now we see that it's also preventative. And we're going to look here at the case of the prophets and the priests, which comes next in Lamentations. So verse 11 says, the Lord gave full vent to his wrath. He poured out his hot anger. And verse 13 shows that the spiritual leaders of the city bear the brunt of the blame for the city's idolatry. Because the people themselves were just following their priests and their prophets who told them lies, lies, set up shrines, and polluted their worship. So we see that the sins of the poor in times of war are not nearly as terrible as the sins of the great in times of peace. So although the most obvious moral outrage in this chapter is with the mothers in verse 10, the harshest words in the chapter are for the leaders in verse 13. Verse 13 talks about the sins of her prophets and the iniquities of her priests who shed in the midst of her the blood of the righteous. Their evil and their conspiracy was so great that when a good prophet like Jeremiah did rise up to speak the truth to them, they murdered him. So what follows is the way God responded to his own corrupt prophets and priests. He put an end to their evil ministry. He put a limit on it. Verse 14, they wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Away, unclean, people cried at them. Away, away, do not touch. So they became fugitives and wanderers. People said among the nations, they shall stay with us no longer. The Lord himself has scattered them. He will regard them no more. No honor was shown to the priests, no favor to the elders. 
So what we see here is God removing their honors and reversing their privileges. And it's really interesting in the, in the language, there's a kind of retributive justice to the way these rulers come undone. Because in normal life, the priests had the luxury of avoiding corpses and blood of dead bodies and maintaining their ritual purity. They told other people whether or not they were clean or unclean. But now they are more defiled than the rest of the population. So it's the people telling the priests to go away and not touch them. We can see here again the, the, uh, a reprisal of the first idea of exposure coming back in a different way. Because the filthiness that these priests already had on the inside is now being manifested on the outside. It's the real truth that's being exposed. So these priests and prophets were the people who defined the inner circle for everyone else. They told the commoners whether or not they were in or out, whether they were righteous or sinners. But now these very people are themselves cast out of the community, it says, as fugitives and wanderers, because the Lord himself scattered them. And that's a really interesting word, because that's the word for dividing, distributing, or apportioning. It's what happened in the land at the beginning. It's the kind of work the priests themselves did with the property of the people. And now here, God is doing that same thing to them, distributing them to the wastelands. So that at the end of the clause, these most honored leaders are left with no honor and no favor. So in his anger at them, God puts an end to their sin and in a very deliberate retributive way as they have done so is done to them a kind of reverse of the golden rule the sin by which they led his people into wickedness and destruction is ended by god's actions so I think we see that people at all levels of society are given freedom to sin now as much as they like, but there is a limit, there is a line. Their own suffering and death will draw a line under their sin, and God will say, thus far and no further. And then it will be time for consequences. So we've said before that all leaders and rulers in the world today will stand judgment before God. Everyone is his proxy, God's proxy commissioned by him to do his work. And every leader and ruler in our world today derives his or her authority from God himself. That means all political leaders, civil authorities, church leaders, employers, community heads, all the rest. And all of us who lead will bear the responsibility that comes with our power. If we abuse our power, we will not escape. And here in Lamentations 4, we catch a glimpse of what that will look like. If God will do this to his own priests, then who is going to escape his judgment? If our income is higher, and our influence is higher, and our power is higher, then so is the standard of our righteousness higher. According to the logic of James chapter 3, verse 1, we who teach shall be judged with greater strictness. So let the great and the honored and the privileged and the powerful be first to take warning from these words. And let the abused and the exploited and the demeaned and the downtrodden take comfort in this hope. 
So first, suffering isn't just a means by which God exposes sin, but second, also a means by which he limits sin. And finally, we're going to look at suffering as a means by which God heals sin. This is the strangest lesson of all. And I take this from verse 22, where it says, The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. That word accomplished is a mighty word. So we saw first that the illuminating nature of suffering is that it makes truth very clear. And second, the preventative nature is that it puts an end to the problem. But now here is also the refining nature of suffering, that it does a work that can at some point be described as accomplished or finished. And it has done the job of restoring peace with God. Now, this sounds like it could just be an extension of the first point. Yeah, that suffering exposes our sin, which leads us to repentance and therefore restores our peace. And that is true. That mechanism does work. But actually now I'm talking about a different thing, a new thing, uh, which is the biblical mystery that suffering brings about rebirth. Out of death comes life. Strange mystery in the scriptures. So if we think about it, none of us sitting here today, none of us alive today is here apart from suffering, right? Our mothers suffered to bring us here into the world. They labored in pain to deliver us. We cannot exist without being the beneficiaries of someone else's suffering. And the same is true spiritually. Neither can we have any spiritual life without accepting the suffering of someone else on our behalf. Without Jesus, who labored in agony on the cross for our spiritual deliverance, we cannot have any life. So suffering is the mechanism that God has appointed on earth to heal sin. But the mechanism is interesting because it doesn't work for us. It only works in a pay it forward kind of way. It doesn't heal our own sin, but it can make us agents of healing for other people. Because suffering for the sake of someone else is the highest form of love. Our delivery from the womb and our deliverance on the cross were both forms of incredible love. And by them, we are saved. All right, so let's see this pattern in the text. Uh, it says in verse 22 that Israel's punishment is over because it has been accomplished. But as we dig into that and think about it, we know from the witness of God's word elsewhere that they cannot have paid for their own sins by their own suffering. Because no amount of suffering can afford to pay the price of our eternal souls. That is very clear in scripture. So instead, something much more valuable has to have been given on their behalf in order for God to say that their healing has been accomplished. And we find it back in verse 20. It says, the breath of our nostrils, the Lord's anointed, was captured in their pits, of whom we said, under his shadow, we shall live among the nations. All right, so in context, this must be talking about Israel's king, King Zedekiah at the time. Kings were often called the Lord's anointed, literally the Lord's Messiah. And King Zedekiah was literally captured by the Babylonians and punished. But this verse is also recognizable as a prophecy because Jesus, the true Messiah who was to come and the one who literally put breath in all of our nostrils was also captured in the pits of the enemy and put to death. And his death was the real price for sin that made Jeremiah's declaration in verse 22 possible. Their punishment was accomplished in verse 22, but it was accomplished when Jesus cried out from the cross, it is 
finished. So their healing was accomplished by Jesus' suffering, just like ours is. But then we have the next realization that Jerusalem's suffering was also instrumental in our healing. Because without their suffering, they would not have repented and returned to the Lord, nor preserved a faithful remnant to whom Jesus, our Savior, could be born. So Israel's suffering has a role in healing us. And so we see from this and from the apostles in the New Testament that there is a pay-it-forward kind of mechanism at work in the way that suffering brings healing. Suffering is not wasted, but it doesn't necessarily do its best work in us. It may be doing its best work in other people, the people we love and suffer for. So let's close with some ways that this might work itself out. So maybe you're a parent who suffers over your own child? Is your child sick, needing constant attention and round-the-clock care? Or is your child rebellious, heading off down a path of self-destruction? And you, as their parent, agonize in your soul as you labor in prayer for their deliverance. You can take heart from these words that suffering can accomplish healing. Others have suffered so that you may live, and now you are suffering that your children may live. And it is a good and noble and purposeful work. And I also think this has an application for our evangelism because spreading the message of Jesus so often involves suffering. Less so in America, but we have friends who are spreading the gospel in Turkey and in China and Nigeria and India and many other places where proclaiming Jesus can cost you your life. And these witnesses are embracing suffering out of love for lost people. And they're willing to pay the suffering forward and say, my life for yours. If we suffer doing this work of witness, then it is not wasted. It is not for nothing. The suffering itself has power to accomplish the healing of God. So this too is a good and noble and purposeful work. So, none of us like suffering. It's the part of human experience that we're most anxious to avoid. But we have to acknowledge that suffering does some very powerful and important work against sin. Here in Lamentations, we see that it exposes sin so that we might repent. It limits sin so that we might have hope in the future. And it heals sin so that the people we love might be saved. Amen.